0: Oh, it has gotten away from me. Well, shall we bow in prayer before we begin and commit this time to the Lord? Holy Father, we offer this time to you. We pray that the meditations of our heart and the words that I speak would be acceptable in your sight, that we might be equipped to go and make disciples of all nations, that we and they may declare your your glory among all the nations, your marvelous deeds among all peoples until that day when you come back for us and we gather before your throne as a people and tribes from every nation uh, to worship you for all eternity. And I just pray now that you would be present, Holy Spirit, and guide my words and guide the thoughts of uh, these, my brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name, amen. How can we do more with less, a cost-effectiveness analysis? My tail follows me. I'm Dr. Steve Merriam, a family doc at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, a journey that the Lord brought me to with very curved writing uh, from a background in medical missions and work in rural upper peninsula of uh, uh, Michigan. Hoorah. Uh, and uh, you betcha. <laughs> this morning we're going to talk about something uh, slightly more uh, difficult than deer hunting. It is opening day. I'm missing it. My blind is out by the river. Um, and that is, how can we do cost-effective chronic disease care in a resource-limited setting? Now, this is something I teach my residents as a family doc. That those of you practicing family medicine primary care, this is near and dear to your heart. It's bread and butter. But now we're going to translate it into what we need to do in a a very resource-limited setting. So what shouldn't we be doing? That's perhaps a bit easier to say. We shouldn't be following U.S. treatment protocols, right? Because even though that would be, you might say, just, it's inappropriate in a place where people can't afford the medicines you might otherwise use or the testing or the monitoring Uh, or those frequent rechecks. So this is the big idea summary slide, that if you take the full cost of the whole care process, from care access to medication prescribing to monitoring to follow-up to chronic disease management into the continuum of the end of life, all of that, all of the harms compared to those benefits, and you do that compassionately, you will be providing cost-effective care. Now, I'm a clinician. I'm not an economist. So um, if, if I do this inadequately, for those of you in the room, is anyone in here an economist, just so I can be aware where the tomatoes might be coming from? Okay, thank you. Thank you for hiding your hand and your head. I feel more comfortable now. Less tests, less technology, just the essentials. That's what caring for people in resource-limited settings involves. Less specialists. It should be less physician-driven. Public health should be primary. We should avoid futility, and the patient should be at the center of our care. It should be coordinated, comprehensive care by an accessible primary care provider. Sounds like sort of the the statutes upon which family medicine is built, and of course it is. The cost-effectiveness care delivery value chain. So this is a model of of trying to to do all of this in clinical care. It's called the care delivery value chain. In a Harvard Business School paper just a few years ago, uh, the reference is there. It's an easy read. It's not technical. They applied it to HIV AIDS care. And basically what it means is that you look at all of those stages of care in considering how to treat a patient. And if all of that, that I just ran through, doesn't add up to a a cost-benefit equation that's favorable, then you have no business treating the patient for that disease. We'll of course do some examples in a second. Cost-effectiveness analysis looks for best buys. For example, if you have a patient who presents with hyperlipidemia, is a smoker, you don't say, stop smoking, he says, really don't want to. You say, well, then we'll give you a statin. I mean, we do that here in the U.S., right? Because we kind of have to. In a resource-limited setting, it's completely inappropriate. The statin's benefits are so negligible, and many of you know this literature, that in primary prevention, they're essentially unmeasurable. So our cardiovascular clinic... Uh, care clinic at Mayo has stopped prescribing statins for primary prevention for that very reason. You just don't see a good benefit. Certainly in Africa, the bang for the buck is going to be in smoking cessation. It expresses decisions and costs per, per benefit. It's, it's usually you know, U.S. dollars per disability-adjusted life year gained. And it requires clear knowledge rather than just a guess of the numbers needed to treat. Let me modify that. So it requires a very good gestalt of the numbers needed to treat. So if if you know something has a very high number needed to treat, then you're not going to go there, uh, and and rather you'll use more cost-effective means of treatment. What's a reasonable cost? Well, one measure could be how much is the patient willing to pay for the, for the estimated value of treatment. But that requires you to enter into really clear decision, cl- uh, shared decision-making with the patient, doesn't it? I mean, if they think that your antihypertensive med is going to save their life, it really doesn't. It just reduces risk just like lifestyle changes do, right? Uh, then, then they walk out of the office thinking, this is the key to my survival, and that money they spend on that will displace money from their wives' prenatal care, from their children's nutrition, because dad needs the pills. And that's wrong. What's one disability-adjusted life you're worth? That's another way of looking at this. That's the WHO way. That's the way ministries of health in the countries you'll work in use to determine what should be included. So, for example, in a low-income country... Pap smears are not done. Now, they're not done just because no one could find any slides or there aren't any, aren't any cytopathologists. They're not done for the very clear reason that the cost-benefit analysis shows them to be cost-effective. Once you get into that middle range, then they become cost-effective. Three times the per capita income then takes that whole aggregate of patients from the whole country and says, this is what we should and what we shouldn't do. But that's not your situation. Like me, you're a clinician or clinician-to-be in most of your cases. A few of you may end up in administration or management or something like that, but most of you will be acting in a one-to-one relationship with each patient. And so I think a better way to deal with that as clinicians is, what's the patient's income? Get a sense of what they can afford to pay and what their able them to reasonably uh, uh, treat themselves with in a cost-effective way. Okay, let's run through this because we haven't had enough coffee and we need to kind of make this practical. Your eyes are almost starting to glaze over. Busy slide. So this is case one. We've got a hypertensive Ghanaian farmer. Guinea is a place where, where I work, our church works. Mark Dozier is going there in a couple of days. Hello, Mark. Uh 55-year-old Ghanaian farmer, two hours away, sees you for a rash on his feet. He's got a blood pressure of 159 over 99. Yes, of course, I chose it to be difficult. And is normal other than he's got some tinea pedis, okay? Little athlete's foot there. Uh, non-smoker, mildly obese, so his BMI is 33. No history of heart disease, stroke, diabetes. You examine him, he looks clean that way. Um, no symptoms of polyuria. He's not a diabetic. That's how you tell. Hmm? In addition to the clotrimazole for his tinea, what are you going to do? Well, A, you'll recommend some lifestyle changes. Of course you're going to do that. But let's see what else I think maybe you should do. Blood pressure checks by the village health worker. Return if he's consistently hypertensive. Hmm, That's reasonable. Or do A, but start some hydrochlorothiazide daily now. Aspirin 81 milligrams daily. Do that, but then also check some labs. And ECG, do that, but also check his cholesterol and initiate a statin if elevated. Or E, do that, and then if he's diabetic, he's hyperglycemic, start some metformin. So how many for A? How many for B? How many for C? Oh, good. How many for D? You see where I'm going with this. How many for E? Who wants to just go the full enchilada? (laughs) Okay, JNC7 and WHO uh, define hypertension this way. In other words, once you're over, somewhere above 140 over 90, it might be valuable to begin treatment. It's not normal to be that high even, 139 over 89, but it's at that point that we begin treatment, except for someone with renal disease, as you know, those of you who are practicing, we'd start them a little bit earlier. There's lots of hypertension in Africa, tons of it, and it's untreated. And those that are treated mostly aren't controlled. So, you know, 1% or less have controlled hypertension. In Guinea, where we work currently, there's a large difference between urban and rural. Uh, Strangely, the rural folks tend to be more treated um, in that study. So should we treat mild hypertension? Reasonable question. It's a knee-jerk reaction here in the U.S. They got it. We treat it. Well, not there. So the number needed to treat for a year is about 700. 700 people get treated in my office with mild hypertension for one to not have an event, a severe event in a year. Numbers needed to treat always need to be expressed in terms of time, right? It's not per day they... Prevent that. So, if the cost of treatment is $50 a day, (coughs) stick with me here. And $50 a day, I would submit, is about the lowest you can treat per year. Okay, that's that's five cents a pill, which times three, and that's like 15 bucks for the pills. And then you got the taxi ride from two hours away. That so he had to take the taxi in to get to the hospital, and then he had to have Supper on the night he traveled and breakfast the day he got there, pay for a place to stay a couple bucks to, to sleep in some little uh, duca And then he needed to pay for your office visit and then he needed to get home. You, you with me now? The whole cost chain there, you need to think about that. And now we need to think about what happens after you treat him the first time. Now he's going to need monitoring. Now he's going to need to come back for pills the next year. Now he's going to need eventually something more when he progresses with his disease and so on. So where do you draw that line and how do you make this decision? Again, if you use the WHO's 3X per capita GNP, uh, it wouldn't. It wouldn't come up to okay to treat this guy. I think an even better and easier method is three times his income. So if he's making 300 a year disposable, in, uh, non-disposable, uh, 300 a year total income from his farming, uh, then three times that would be $900 uh, in U.S. dollars. And, and that's to then prevent a one in 700 event. So if we if we take that and then multiply that 1 in 700 times the 50 bucks, $35,000 to prevent an event, when you treat that guy, he thinks he's getting life-saving treatment. Did you really explain that to him, that there's a probability of benefit here of about 1 in 700, or did we just hand him the pills and start him down a path that he wasn't ready for? Labs. What labs should you do? Well, your analysis is cheap and it gives you a lot of information. If there's renal disease present, he gets put in a new category, higher risk, right? If you get a creatinine, you can get a function, not just is there some proteinuria and your potassium may talk to you about, you know, some uh, primary hyperaldosteronism might not change what you do. So who to treat? Well, it depends. Okay? depends on access to care, how far away did he come from, follow-up, the cost of meds, availability of those, his comorbidities, his household finances, and then give him risk-based treatment, uh, full informed consent, go through the whole cost-value chain. How about isolated systolic hypertension? Well, here the numbers needed to treat are a bit lower, uh, around 100 per year to prevent a cardiovascular event. So systolic's over 160, a normal diastolic uh, pressure or one under 95, then you're going to be maybe getting into a little more cost-effective for the little more resourced individual. So am I talking about rationing here? Is that what this is about? I mean, Buzzword? Uh, No, this is about rational care. This is about carefully considering the environment in which you're practicing and the resources of the patient and what really uh, we should be doing in the big picture. Because every dollar he spends on his hypertension is that money taken away from the family's other medical needs. So when you do decide to treat, so say this guy came in with 190 over 120. Okay, all of us would treat. We know that his risks are now very, very high for a stroke. Uh, or other cardiovascular event. So treat him rationally. Treat him cost-effectively. Give him a whole year's worth of medicine, because it took him a lot of money to get there, and it's going to take him a lot of more money to get back. And treat him sort of empirically and anticipating what he might need. So hydrochlorothiazide, those of you in practice know that's great bang for the buck. And if you just say, hey, of citrus or a banana every day, you're good to go. See me in a year, see me in six months, something like that, and then check him or have the village health worker do that. Now, I, I realize, okay, but stick with me here. So risk stratification by uh, JNC-7 and the WHO guidelines go like this. So if he has lots of other risk factors He's in high risk. You examine him. He has LVH, or you you detect that there's some degree of of renal disease. You you know that he has some retinopathy from your exam. You're you're going to move him down this category, and then he's in the very high-risk category. It's much easier to make that decision to treat, and those numbers need to treat fall precipitously. Similarly, if he has severe hypertension. So this is a no-brainer but the stuff around there is also reasonable. The stuff way up there in that corner, unless he's a wealthy guy from the capital city, you know, a government worker, uh, they're all well-paid reasonably. Uh, Then they might might warrant treatment uh, because their disposable income doesn't then get sucked away from the kids and the wife and so on. So the big idea, patients, families, countries with more resources, Treated at earlier stages, if he's paying out of pocket, mild hypertension probably is not something you should be treating him for. Now, I realize that in terms of uh, what happens down the road, if we don't treat his hypertension, he may end up with that. So the biggest cause of congestive failure in Africa is hypertension, untreated hypertension, a large cause of, of, of congestive failure. So how should we treat mild hypertension or low-risk patients? It depends, but it requires shared decision-making. In a a reasonably fluid and, and efficient manner, discuss this is what your risk is, sir. And I realize for illiterate people who may not have that kind of a probabilistic thinking, it's going to be tougher. But I think there needs to be some of that. Otherwise, it's paternalism to just throw the meds at him. And then do the things that are really cost-effective, which is lifestyle change. And let's look at what those can provide. So weight reduction. If we just get him to lose 10 pounds, this is true here in the States too, right? You get that kind of a, a nonlinear curve with patients. They might be right on the cusp of 10 pounds weight loss, making them normal-tensive. Well, then why start a medicine for mild hypertension when your patient may come back normal tense of 10 pounds uh, skinnier? Or adopting a Mediterranean diet or DASH diet is what, what's been promoted by JNC7. The med diet gives you both of those things, that the DASH and the sodium reduction gives you, and I recommend that strongly. Physical activity. Well, he's a farmer, so he's getting plenty of that. Um, and then alcohol limitation, if that's one of his issues. He needs to know that this prescription didn't cure him, that he's going to need to be on this for life, that if he doesn't take it, he will get potentially a number of other diseases, um, that he won't feel better. So if he had something going on, erectile dysfunction, headaches, etc and mild hypertension, he won't feel better. But it's good for him nonetheless. That the lifestyle modification is as important, and in this context, more important than the medicine, and that he needs to take that medicine daily. So you choose his medicine wisely. Cheap, convenient, effective risk reduction, and no side effects. I mean, that's the ideal pill. Um, And then in terms of second uh, treatments, the second thing uh, that needs to be done if the first doesn't work, you know, all the meds have have about the same benefit. In the all-hat study, we know that. So at least in that population, just about anything you choose for hypertension works just about equally, with the exception probably of a tenolol, which is not as effective. Start with the thiazide diuretics and then add things to that in this particular case. Calcium channel blockers work better in American African Americans and Africans than do some of the other things. This is kind of an old study uh, from the uh, New England Journal 93. Diltiazem, much more effective than captopril. On the other hand, if you add in a thiazide diuretic with captopril or a beta blocker, you're going to get uh, a much better effect than those alone. They become effective with that. So here's sort of the choosing meds wisely. Calcium channel blocker in Africa is a reasonable second-line therapy. And then you need to start looking at what am I also treating, right? We're always going to try and get three birds with that one stone. So, of course, if you've got some comorbidities, then you're going to use that to direct what your other therapy is. You know, if he's a diabetic, for example, then starting him on an ACE might be your second line uh, or even first line, depending on the situation. This kind of a chart can guide us. So the ABCDs of choosing meds wisely, you can start out with your thiazide diuretic and your banana, and he's all set to go. Village health worker monitors him. He starts to become more hypertensive. All the lifestyle stuff has, has begun. And, again, this is, say, if he was more in the 170 over 105 or something like that, higher risk. Uh, and then you add in things depending on what else he develops in terms of secondary uh, complications or diseases. Moving on, so case number two: we've got a boy here from Togo who presents with DKA to your rural mission hospital. He's from a village without electricity or running water in his home. His family lives on less than two dollars a day per person. He's been now in the hospital for a few days. Does this case sound familiar? Any of you been on the field? You've seen this. You will see this, medical students and residents. This is heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, and you'll have a nightmare about it. His father comes to you after a few days of hospitalization and says, I can't afford hospitalization anymore. Can you discharge my son home so he can die? Ready for that? So you would, what, become angry? Give him your, you know, man up, dad. Uh... What's what's with that? You know? Don't you care about your son? I've heard myself do that. This will rise in your heart. You will become angry because you know you could save this kid's life and the world is an unjust place and his dad can't afford to pay the bill. Well maybe it comes out of your own pocket. Let's start the insulin. Let's resource him. Let's come around him with big funds. Get him a glucometer. Get him insulin. Get him syringes and needles. Maybe the family can move to live near the hospital. Maybe I can get my home church to create a fund. That's number two. Option number C, ask the chaplain to share with the father and son about our eternal hope in Jesus and discharge him. Possibility number four, keep them hospitalized, provide continued monitoring and insulin until stable and think about it later. You'll do that. Guarantee you. There will be a day and uh, and too much will have happened in the prior 24 hours and that will be the choice and you'll deal with it the next day. The present reality is that in many, many, many countries on Earth, there is not insulin available. There is not the infrastructure to enable a child with type 1 diabetes to live. And so the, expected life, the life expectancy of that child is less than one year on average. And frankly, it's days. You discharge him, he goes back into DKA, and he dies the annual treatment costs are more than uh, 3 times the country's per capita income or their treatments not reasonable that's the who model now there is debate and conflict and tension out there because international interest groups are saying that is not just and they're right but unless those resources are brought to bear in each case in every place, you won't see this happening anytime soon. You could Google on or just click on that little fact sheet where you see people from uh, a diabetes, international diabetes group saying, this is what we need to do no matter what. You can read that if you get really up close, um, more coffee would be required. But you'll find that in each country, the sufficiency of diabetes medications is lacking. You just can't find them. So let's change it up. A little lighter, sorry. Um, That's now a 70-year-old. So, okay, I can deal with his death if he dies. (laughs) 70-year-old man presents, and now he has polyuria. He's from the same village, okay? Uh, And you find that uh, he has no evidence of sort of uh, bladder enlargement, so your assumption is, yep, he's a diabetic. Sure enough, random glucose, 354, normal exam. Where do you go with this guy? So advise weight loss, exercise, and aspirin a day. Or choice two, uh, add, yeah, you can leave your hands up and then put them down when I get to the one. Okay, who wants to just do A, advise weight? You want to do that? That's pretty reasonable. Thank you. Um, add, add some metformin, 2000. Daily. Okay, we got some metformin going in there. Put your hands down if you want to drop the metformin. Uh, check a creatinine and then do that only if his creatinine is lowish. Yeah, okay, maybe. Um, do C, but then also add a statin for his cholesterol, and then do D, but also add an ACE, and get some home glucose monitoring going. Nobody's going there. <laughs> you kind of anticipate me, don't you? Uh some fast little pieces for those who are clinicians. Question? Will there be time for response or questions at the end, or is this our only chance? By God's grace, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say something? Yes, please. So I work with the poor in Buffalo. I take care a lot about uninsured patients, and they also have a clinic with Sarah Leon, so I'm not being naive here. But when I hear you talk, what I think about is Paul Farmer's work. And Paul Farmer went to looked at AIDS and people dying, and he didn't say what you're saying. Maybe you're going to have a caveat at some point. He didn't look at the cost of that. Thank you. And he didn't say it's okay for people die. And what he did is he figured out a way to lower the cost, to come with a different kind of system of care. And so I, I categorically reject. I mean, I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm all these kids here and I think leave this room thinking this is the way to go I just I I just thank you thank you so the the question so that it's on the computer uh, on the uh recording which is completely appropriate is what about Paul farmers work he, you know so partners in health in Buffalo, you know say again what about the yes we we face the same thing here in the US although the degree of poverty is miles apart. Yeah. So Paul Farmer's work uh, in in Haiti and Peru and Russia and so on, about which he's written extensively and many of you have read, uh, has been uh, viewed by some as the way to go. We've got to figure out uh, a way to make this work despite the costs. Yes, agree. Agree. We all want that. We all want that passionately, and our hearts burn and cry for the day when there's justice in a new heavens and a new earth. It's not here yet. In a country it comes with... comes because of the small farmers. It comes because of the people who follow Jesus who don't accept the status quo. Yes. And, and so the, the, the rejection of the status quo and let us actively combat against it is is the... Uh, is the right way to be headed. I absolutely agree. And no, I am not saying thank you for asking it in case you got any clue that I am saying that we should let the child die without tears and without a lot of anguish and without trying to change the system. Absolutely not. We have got to work to change these inequities. But the reality In rural Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, where the farmer who lives on no disposable income, that $300 is food and some other little necessities, is that if that money, you know, if, if, if the lowest diabetes costs right now, you're coming in somewhere in the $350, $400 a year kind of thing. That's the whole income. So they are now on aid indefinitely. There may be a way where it becomes possible. I mean, look at what PEPFAR has done. And and what Paul Farmer's point is, especially for multidrug-resistant TB, is that if we don't treat that aggressively, then we put the whole rest of the world at risk. And that's a whole different issue than with type 1 diabetes. But you're absolutely right. We have got to fight this. We've got to fight this. But when you're the clinician there and that's the decision, then – with tension, you need to do something uh, that's reasonable. And that's where the t- and, and what I'm saying is there's a method to making that decision while fighting it at the same time. And if I could do this talk again, I'd put that right in the front. Thank you for bringing it up. Good? Please. Robert. I just wanted to build on that, is that. I could be equally passionate and be in a village two hours away from where you're working and then six months down the road me grieving because his three brothers and sister did not have enough nutrition and they were then dying of typhoid. So so there's the long term and then the immediate and I think it's about I just wanted to Yeah, see. there is definitely a balance where that money will be displaced from the rest of the family uh is what the participant shared. So this it's easier in some of this It's easier in Buffalo in some of this, where we know that primary prevention with statins and over-treatment of diabetes to low, low, low A1C targets, you know, the tight control junk is silly. Um, And so some of it becomes easy. Type 1 diabetes, very, very difficult and challenging. Back when the Mr. Fit study kind of showed that, you know, and, and others have shown that there's a, there's value in some things more than in other things. And aspirin is better than lipid-lowering. Blood pressure controls pretty good, but smoking cessation, my heavens. That's low-hanging fruit. Let's be working on that kind of thing. Back then, the confusion was that where's all that residual risk, that blue stuff? Maybe that's tight control. We tightly control type 2 diabetes, and then our patients are going to, have a normal life. Uh, that's silly. We now know that's silly and show you why. You know these studies. Um, many of you do. So that was the conclusion error that if we tighten control, unfortunately, this is still, okay, I love controversy. Um, this is still uh, a conclusion error. Okay? Your endocrinologist friends are still trying to get people to normal, normal glycemia with type two diabetes, including poor patients. But lowering blood sugar is not changing their risk much at all. Lifestyle change, Mediterranean diet, and treating other things like smoking cessation and to a lesser degree hypertension does work. We know from UK PDS 33, there wasn't really any difference in mortality. There was less laser photocoagulation for, for diabetic retinopathy and you know but there wasn't significant difference in death then we had the advanced trial no difference in cardiovascular death non fatal mi stroke the accord trial no significant difference in mi or stroke tight control less tight control despite which and i put that in there for the reason of the controversy internationally There's a paper on on the the folder for this talk that's a diabetes group saying we need to get diabetics all over the world tightly controlled for their type 2 diabetes. But we know that glycemic control has little to do with morbidity and mortality. It's the cause of the hyperglycemia that we need to treat. It's obesity. It's inactivity. It's other bad behaviors that mitigate the risk. And that's where we're going to get some real benefit. Stop smoking, lose weight, eat a Mediterranean diet, exercise, take an aspirin, normalize the blood pressure if all of that is being done, maybe a statin for those at very higher risk, renal disease, glycemic controls of minor benefit, treat their symptoms in the resource limited setting. Tight control doesn't seem to make a difference. And we don't know if tight means an A1C of 10, 11, 13, or if it really is just between seven and eight. Mediterranean diet. If they're not eating a Mediterranean diet, then that's going to be of great benefit. We saw that on that prior slide. Dramatic lowering of, of hypertension and, uh, and benefits in terms of prevention of, of secondary events. You know, um, in terms of what it costs to treat diabetes more tightly, here in Ghana, look at that, eight days wages for a month of treatment to to lower their blood sugar, something that doesn't extend their life and takes that money away from the kids and the wife and so on. So one medication decreases mortality. That's metformin. We now know it's safe in heart failure. It's probably safe in kidney disease. Lactic acidosis has been overstated. French studies showing that it was safe in uh, even uh, lower GFRs and, um, and heart failure. So in order of highest to lowest priority, reduce their risk. Lifestyle change. Reduce their symptoms with treatment. Not the A1C. I would submit to you. This is controversial. If there's an endocrinologist in the room, I'm expecting tomatoes any second. But please bear with me and look at those studies reasonably. Accord Advanced, VADT, we've got 50 years of research showing lack of clear great benefit. If you have retinal monitoring, then you need to have some treatment for it. What good is it to find out they've got a retinopathy when you can't treat it? So here's your pregnant Pakistani woman. She comes in. She's a G2P1. She had an uncomplicated last pregnancy by a trained TBA in her home, and she presents for prenatal care to your rural hospital. Perhaps her husband or she got a new source of income. She has some money. Now she wants to be sure that she has a very Western delivery that's safer. So you would what? Recommend monthly visits increasing to every two weeks. That's what we do here. Recommend she simply again deliver at home with a TBA. Recommend care at the maternity in town or recommend a full enchilada of services. I'm throwing you a curveball here. Okay, so A, I'm going to bring you in every month, two weeks at the end. Who wants to do that? No? Okay. Recommend she just deliver at home again with a TBA. Okay. Recommend care at the maternity in town. Costs less, save money. Recommend two doses of tetanus toxoid, iron folate, insecticide-treated bed net, intermittent preventive treatment during pregnancy with Fancidar for malaria, prenatal visit each trimester with a midwife or physician, and then delivery with the midwife. Uh, it is D. Uh, this one is thoroughly evidence-based because, you know, one of the MDGs, um, the only slide on the MDGs that's in here is is to improve maternal health. And we know that there are many, many, many countries uh, where that millennial development development goal is not being met well, uh, and they're in red as shown. High maternal mortalities And very few resources to change that at present. 800 800 women dying every day, which you'll note is is the caption. How many babies died? You know, infant death is around a third in these countries. uh, To 40 percent of of the deaths of under five uh, children is in the neonatal period, and much of it is because of untrained delivering them. We've got a long ways to go in a couple regions in the world, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, to make a difference in maternal health and maternal mortality. Nearly two-thirds of deliveries in the developing world are done by trained or skilled health personnel, meaning a third or so still untrained, and it makes a huge difference. So skilled attendance at birth saves mothers and babies, and it's very cost-effective and very inexpensive. Despite which, in this very colorful uh, analysis, here's the number of, of pregnant women by country, so Ethiopia is over here and Tanzania is over here, uh, that have had one prenatal visit in their prior pregnancy. One! One! So 30% of Ethiopian women had one prenatal visit. That's not enough to become immune to tetanus toxoid, so they're going to have neonatal tetanus. You know that. They're not going to be on effective malarial prophylaxis, so they're going to have malaria, or their babies will. Uh, they're going to be anemic, and that's going to affect them as well as their, their child, uh, who will have learning problems, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> so here's one where you can spend good money, fully reasoned, one visit per tri- trimester for prenatal care, iron folate, fancidar treatment uh, or prophylaxis, insecticide-treated bed nets to sleep under, tetanus immunization, and then advise the location of delivery that's cost-effective. So if they have a village, TBA, who's been trained and is effectively doing deliveries safely, cleanly, reasonable. Otherwise, it really should be a midwife, someone certified by the government. Examine the care delivery value chain, okay? So we're going to look at each patient from prevention through testing, screening to staging the disease, if it's HIV or hypertension, whatever that is, delaying progression of that disease, initiation of therapy, continuous disease management through the whole course of their disease, and then managing their deterioration. And when we look at all of that and then compare compare it, intervening at each step with the benefit of that, then I would submit to you that we can decide on who should be treated. Because even if we don't treat the type 1 diabetic, we're not going to be doing renal dialysis for the patient at the end of life with type 1 diabetes that has progressed renal disease. And so these are important but difficult decisions that the Church of God needs to be involved in uh, and i understand paul farmer's passion for justice and agree with it and yet the tension is there to do what is possible and reasonable within the ministry of health budgets of these countries cost effective prevention means that we get the money where the best benefit is it's latrines and hand washing and clean water and so our village health programs our community health evangelism needs to be out there doing this stuff and then doing what's really effective for diabetes and hypertension. We know that that's what reduces disease, right? We know these charts. We know that if we intervene in a public health way, we spend few dollars and see dramatic, dramatic decreases in disease. And then maybe some targeted... Treatment like aspirin for coronary artery disease. Limited labs, limited imaging, careful exams, rare specialists. You know, this is the model that's used by IMCI that I have to talk about the next hour, which which is that you can make a diagnosis without an X-ray. The child's coughing and they're tachypneic and they have some retractions. They get treated for pneumonia effectively rather than, spending the money on x-rays, and et cetera, et cetera. Cost-effective treatment is lifestyle, public health. It's essential meds, not the frou-frou stuff. It balances the numbers needed to treat with the benefit, the benefit with the harm, and avoids futile care. We don't need to treat. Those of you in academics as well as in practice know that otitis media mostly doesn't need treatment. Conjunctivitis doesn't need treatment. There's a difference, of course, between the child with a pus out, bacterial, severe, uh, with a periorbital cellulitis, et cetera. But average case of that, sinusitis, acute bronchitis, does not need antibiotic treatment. And so don't waste the public's money on that stuff. Rather, treat what's effective. IND, the, uh, the abscess, even MRSA, the US, UCSF studies uh, have shown clearly that we don't need antibiotics if they don't have associated cellulitis. Avoid the expensive junk. And then task shift. Why do we have the highest paid people doing all these things? For example, surgery. So surgical task shifting. You as generalists should be doing general surgery. The general surgeon should be doing specialty surgery. That's the new model uh, that I believe is, is the way of the future for reducing costs. It's getting you and me to do the hernias and the appies and so on, and the general surgeons to do the specialty surgery like cleft repairs. And then effective treatment, efficient treatment of chronic disease, if it saves lives, not if it just follows a protocol. Balancing those numbers needed to treat and avoiding futility at the end of life. Why do we as Christians of all people not introduce hospice to our dying patients why do we hold back and treat them till the last minute that's jewish ethics that's not christian ethics we have an eternal hope and if that patient has been led to the lord then why are they so resistant to dying especially when that when when that disease is futile they have cancer they have end stage heart disease and they're dying and yet we hospitalize them rather it should be our hospice Uh, And chaplains who are working and uh, and providing that transition at the end of life. So, the problem is not usually the cause of death, it's the actual cause of death, right? It's tobacco, it's poor diet, it's alcohol, etc. And that's where our efforts, especially as primary care physicians, should be placed. So here comes case number four, and I'll end with this. An anginal African farmer, you see this guy, small business owner, he presents with angina. he's a smoker, eats a reasonable diet, but high salt. Exam shows him to be obese, a bit hypertensive, otherwise normal exam. In order of most to least important, which of the following would you do? There's other things you should do too. But these are five options I gave you. So... Uh, Who wants to go first with uh, letter A? Out of these choices, we'll first advise weight loss. Okay. Maybe E. But what about C? Who wants to go first with C? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. So we'll get him to stop smoking. He needs to know that the day he stops smoking, he reduces his cardiovascular mortality risk dramatically. And that's where the money should be placed. And then, then let's get him to lose weight. Absolutely. Of course, you're going to do this together. I mean, be realistic. And get him to exercise. How about controlling his hypertension with a beta blocker? He has angina. Okay. So he's got secondary disease. Thank you. So he's in that higher risk category. Notice, notice diastolic. He's got diastolic 105. So he's, he's in that kind of moderate range. Plus he has heart disease. Okay. And is at least at this moment a smoker. So you want to modify his wrists and you also want to treat his angina because he's got to hoe the fields with angina. So that would be very reasonable. So I'm not saying don't treat people. Don't get me wrong. Treat it reasonably. But lipid lowering to less than 70, I mean, that's what I would do in my patient here. Would you do that there? Well, it depends. So if he's well-resourced, if he's a farmer and he's got huge plots and he can afford it and still have money for the kids and so on, then it's reasonable. Academic cost-effectiveness analysis depends on presuppositions about benefits and harms. I wanna draw your attention to some attempts to do this sort of thing in a clinical method. David Buwer, who's at U of M, uh, has done HIV research in Uganda and uh, has a recent paper that I put in there. Uh, there's some uh, non-communicable disease, cost-effectiveness analyses in there, one on diabetes that strongly advocates for treating aggressively all diabetes in Africa, South Asia, and so on. Um, So that balances my own um, unusual twist on this, perhaps. Best buys paper on where we can get the most bang for our buck, and then there's a Harvard Business School paper that goes through that value chain analysis and shows how you do it for HIV-AIDS, but then you can apply that to other diseases. Medical missionaries behaving well Follow the treatment protocols in the country. Focus on prevention. Treat patients intelligently with regard to the absolute benefits, all costs, and the patient's financial resources. Um, This is what I set out to do. I realize that I've raised controversial things. Some of you are going to leave here with indigestion. Some of you will be going, no, that's kind of reasonable, Some of you are like, I've been trying to tell my patients this for years and are right there with me. I realize that's controversial. I appreciate the comment, uh, and I appreciate where we're going with this, which is a world of justice when the Lord brings in his kingdom. Amen? And may that come quickly, and we'll close it there. Question, sir. Stuff, other than the local medical and making me feel good about things and me feel very good about treating them, um, where, would you, where would you draw the line? Thank you. And, and the question, which I'll repeat in case it's still recording, don't know that it is, but um, uh, is what about short-term medical missions and what about taking in chronic disease uh, management meds that will be perhaps just prescribed for a month or two, you know, in, in little sample packs and uh, and, and, and does that undercut the local economy and so on? Uh, the question is rhetorical with passion. I appreciate it. And, uh, and we need to think seriously about the, the church needs to really examine what they're doing. There's stuff written about this, but it's not out there in prominence for one very good reason. It's that when you start saying stuff like that, you immediately become a pariah. Right? So, but all of you who'd feel that way need to speak up. And so when your church says, we're going to do this hit and run missions thing to this little place we've never been. And there's no long-term worker from our church who's involved. And we're just going to go in and witness to those people and be there for a week and then leave and give them a bunch of hot hypertensive meds and metformin. You speak up and you say, no, that's wrong. We'll go there if we're going to have a clinic there all the time, if we're going to develop the local economy, if we're going to help the people and really build capacity, but we're not going to go there and destroy and think we're going to ride in on white horses and do something heroic, uh, which is actually harmful. And it needs to be said in those kind of meetings, but you won't be popular. Yes. Um, it. If I can, I will, I will do so. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Yes, sir. First example about the you talked about avoiding paternalism and having an informed consent discussion based on honest treatment. But don't you have to have some sort of paternalism in that? I mean, there, doesn't there have to be a balance because how do you have an informed consent discussion? Or, or the patient in Buffalo who, you know, or the, the well-resourced patient in Rochester My, you know, I, I got it's people, here, yeah. it's hard enough here, you know, my, my docs, ID doc patients, you know, they want to know what virus they have when I tell them they have a virus. I mean, you know, let's have a shared decision making about what to do for that virus. Um, there's, there's all ranges on the mission field. You do have to have some degree of paternalism, and, so we, and we know from studies that patients want some degree of paternalism. They want you to direct the care. They put their, their trust in you, limitedly, to direct their care, and so you hold that, that sacred trust with, with a bit of careful decision-making and move forward, but I, I think they need to be aware, if you're going to treat them, that, again, This antihypertensive reduces risk, just like you losing weight, stopping smoking, eating a Mediterranean diet, and exercising regularly reduces your risk. It's not any different. It's not curing the disease. Someone had a hand. Yes, sir. I think one point that was missed was um, the power of psychosocial spiritual healing, because I've done a lot of, I've been researching, cardiology, what was found was uh, we gave statins to patients with CAD who had normal lip levels and a cardiovascular risk drops significantly due to the anti-inflammatory effects. Um, and With that, I brought that to my hemophilia patient and the risk of developing inhibitors uh, dramatically reduced when to lower the inflammation. But as opposed to using anti-inflammatories, you can use spiritual healing cycles simple stress release can so decrease the cortisol release, which is weight reduction, which dramatically increases hypertension, and that's what I think we need to do in changing the system to actually have affordable health care. So the comment is to use use more than just medical means, but use spiritual means to address patients' needs because it's there that we can find benefit even for that specific disease, lowering blood pressure uh, through Spiritual healing, which can result in stress reduction, absolutely, and if we are doing this stuff without the context of community health evangelism, without the context of chaplaincy work, uh, without the context of the patient who 's sitting in my my clinic uh, there in in Guinea is also being being shown not just uh, in action the love of Jesus but verbally. Uh, the truth about Jesus, to find true, complete, total healing, uh, then we are doing that patient a disservice. Yes, Um, Just, I guess, a quick question. Um, Without having much experience uh, in missions and just a lot of excitement to feel, um, looking forward to to what it's going to be. What might it look like should, you know, those of us who are coming into this and and getting started in the commission? might it look like if we just decide to uh, uh, I guess according to the fall to treat the patient in front of us and with the understanding that there are going to be repercussions um, for the country uh, and the world but to, to focus um, on the one in front of us if we collectively did that and chose to to fight the big problems yep so the, the question is why not do the Paul Farmer model, which may be somewhat misrepresented. There, are, you know, all of us make decisions at some point. Again, uh, renal dialysis. No one's advocating that. Um, so, why not do the Paul Farmer model and treat the patient in front of us uh, as best we can? Recommend what is the best treatment. Am I representing that question well? And and move forward from there so that as the the body of Christ, that example can be seen that we've done the best thing for the patient. The needs of the patient come first as the Mayo Clinic model. I get that totally. Um, Yes, but. So, again, um, with compassionate understanding of that patient's, economic situation unless there are resources that are brought to bear. So if there is a new fund created by an international diabetes uh, group that provides the funding for relief work in every low income country so that the 90% of children who don't have access now have access to medications there's not funds in that household. It displaces funds, disposable income that was going to feed the other children. Robert's comment is appropriate. It's going to be the three brothers who now come in with, you know, red hair uh, emaciated uh, a year later for care for their malnutrition. And, And so the reality is, is that you will be faced with these decisions my hope here was not to, to give you a sedative so that your heart is not picked by the pain of what needs to be daily advocating for what is real social justice, but rather some way to deal with that patient to patient to patient in a reasonable way that doesn't undercut the health economy of that country. I mean, let's, let's look at this from the... From from even the simpler, less emotional thing of a child not dying, uh, which was obviously put in there for a reason, um, and and deal with it with pap smears. I mean, that's risk reduction, right? But for the low-income countries, it's expensive risk reduction, and there's better ways to use that money. Insecticide-treated bed nets, for example, intermittent preventive treatment in pregnancy, big bang for the buck. Pap smears, yeah, cervical cancer happens to be the most frequent cancer in Guinea. Ooh, and among women, the ki- biggest killer yet still it's not a bigger priority than women dying from malaria or their children dying. So, uh, so the mission hospital, it says, despite that, we're going to start pap smearing and sending all of our slides back to Baltimore or wherever, where they can do the cytopathology and send us results so that our community will be better cared for. And we will address the needs of the, of the patient first. Uh, I have a very big problem with that. I understand the tension. I'm challenging you to look at it uh, with compassionate eyes for what's the, the whole context of care and realize that our ultimate goal is not to prevent death in the world. Thank you all for coming.